0: I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe.
1: There's a glut in the sense that right now, if you talk to financiers, they will tell you there is more money ready to be invested in renewables than there are good projects.
2: Welcome to the Stratfor podcast from worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Ben Cheen. There are a few subjects more geopolitically charged than energy. International and domestic tensions flow through the lines of regulation, import and exportation, and valuation for every type of market, from fossil fuels to renewables. Russell Gold knows this better than most. He's the senior energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal and a best-selling author. His latest book is Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy. He recently sat down with Stratfor's Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon, for a wide-ranging conversation on his writing, his latest book, and the global outlook for energy futures. Let's go to Russell and Reva in the studio.
0: Hello, I'm Reva Gujan, joined by Russell Gold, an award-winning investigative journalist and senior reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Russell has developed his deep research into two compelling books on U.S. energy. The first is The Boom, which details the evolution of the U.S. shale revolution. And his newly released book, Superpower, is a story centered on an incredibly ambitious entrepreneur who has been hell-bent on trying to overhaul the U.S. power grid in favor of renewable energy. Russell, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Russell, typically regulatory battles in the United States don't make for the most enthralling read, but you fortunately are a terrific storyteller, and you put a face to these very big, serious energy trends that we're so used to seeing captured in charts and graphs. Tell us first a little bit about the subject of of Michael Skelly, your main protagonist in Superpower.
1: So, um... I started uh, talking to Michael Skelly four years ago now, and I was told that I should meet him and talk to him because he was working on this big idea. Uh, And the big idea was, it's really simple in some ways, the middle of the country, the Great Plains have an incredible wind resource and a pretty good solar resource as well. Uh, There's lots of land out there, lots of area to, to develop renewables. There's one big problem, and that is that there's not many people who live there. Uh, There are not many factories. There's not the demand for for electricity. So the big idea was can we build sort of a special purpose transmission line to connect Oklahoma to Memphis? Because once you get the power to Memphis and into the TVA grid, you can get to Atlanta. You can get to Washington, Philadelphia, I mean all across the East Coast. Uh, And so he set out to do this. And and people are telling me this is sort of a – it's a great idea – um, it's, it's a, you know, he's pouring lots of money into it. He's got big and blue chip investors. Um, and you should meet him. So I, I went and met him and it turned out his story was even more interesting than I thought it was going to be because not just had he been working on this big transmission idea, but this is a guy who back in 1999 started doing wind and was the chief development officer for one of the, really the, predominant wind development companies in the 2000s, uh, built up what was called Zilka Renewables and then became known as Horizon, now part of EDPR. Um, and, you know, just really his story from 99 to 2019 is really the story of renewables in the United States.
0: And we'll get more into the details of that that fascinating personal story of Skelly. Uh, to take a step back first, though, you um, you know, it was interesting to see the the relationship between your two books, right? So uh, one on the rise of fracking, uh, the other on the drive toward renewables. And I wanted to ask, and I think you raised this question as well in your first book, from your perspective, has the shale revolution had the effect of undermining or reinforcing the growth of renewables?
1: Well, I think there's no question. It's it's reinforced. Um, it's propelled renewables to, to grow. Um, so here's why I think that. If you're going to have a lot of renewables on your grid, which are intermittent, you're going to need a resource that's pretty nimble to jump in And natural, you know, brand new modern natural gas power plants are that. You can't do that with coal. You can't do it with, with nuclear. You just can't start and stop them very much. But a new combined cycle natural gas plant, you know, my God, you can turn it on. You can run it at 80%, 60%. I mean, it's do whatever. So it works really well with wind. So from a grid operator's perspective, if all you had were coal plants, you couldn't put much wind or solar on there Mm. because it just, you couldn't make the grid operate. But with a lot of gas and with the growth of natural gas, you absolutely can bring them together. The other big thing that natural gas and the the rise of of fracking has done is that it drove down the cost of natural gas so amazingly um, and has kept it so low for so long that it forced renewables to to accelerate um, their maturity and get – Lower price, lower price, lower price, just to compete. They couldn't get onto the grid, um, and increasingly now that we're getting rid of subsidies, you know they have to compete head to head. And so, you know, if natural gas was ten dollars per thousand know, cubic feet, which is what it was, say most recently about two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, you know, frankly, everyone was going to be fat and happy. Electricity costs were going to be high. The economy was sort of probably be suffering under high energy costs, uh, and renewables really wouldn't have had to to, to do that much. Because of fracking, because of low natural gas prices, wind had to get much better, much more quickly. Solar had to get much better, much more quickly. It's made them – it's turned them into a very competitive resource.
0: And so it's about finding that right cocktail of energy resources to get the stability that you need in power generation ultimately. Um, For the benefit of our listeners, how much are renewables actually powering the Texas grid today and North America at large?
1: Uh, the United States, it's about 9% and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's adding about 1% a year. Mm-hmm. Texas these days, about a quarter on average. About 20, Last time I checked, it was about 23 24%. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly in Texas coming from winds. So when we talk about Texas, I'm talking about the ERCOT grid. So there are portions on East Texas that aren't the ERCOT grid, but essentially te- that, that's what Texas is. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really amazed me was when you talk to the grid operators, you know, these behind-the-scenes people whose job it is is to not be flashy but to keep that grid going at 60 hertz um, day in and day out, you know, they would say, look, if you had told me 10 years ago that we were gonna have five percent renewables, ten percent. Mm-hmm. I would have panicked. I would have said there's no way, you know, we're gonna bring the grid down, but they figured out how to do it. And now you talk to them and they say twenty five percent Fifty percent on some days, sure. We we know how to do this. We can handle it. It's a and, huge change.
0: And you talk about in your book how I mean, you you saw the computer models. You you met with the visionaries who were doing these feasibility studies for thirty percent renewables integration, fifty percent, even eighty percent by the year twenty twenty six. You know, when what's your take on what's the the reality check on right. that, that when we look at a future estimate?
1: Here's the big takeaway. If you wanna get to 100% renewables, you're gonna pay for that. There's no way to get, right now, to get to 100% renewables without massively increasing the cost. But if you wanna talk about 70 or 80%, We can get there. And not just can we get there, we can get there at today's prices or possibly even a little bit lower. That's what the computer models are telling us. And that's what the experience in Texas has been and in the other grids that are starting to bring in more and more renewables.
0: Cost, as you say, is a a major variable in the competitiveness of renewables. And there was actually recently a Bloomberg report uh, that was saying that in the past nine years, the costs of electricity from wind have dropped 49 percent and 85 percent for solar power, uh, which is – Substantial, obviously, um, and it that's making those renewable sources cheaper um, than power coming from coal or gas-fired plants for about two-thirds of the world.
1: It is cheaper now in a lot of the world to go build a brand-new wind farm or solar farm where there's a good resource than it is to operate an existing coal plant. So even a fully paid, fully depreciated coal plant is having trouble in some places competing with new, brand-new wind. You need a lot fewer people to operate them. Uh, so there's lower labor costs, there's lower maintenance costs, there are fewer moving pieces, so things don't break down, and there's no uh, energy cost. You know, you don't have to buy coal, you don't have to buy natural gas. So it's just. Um it's a really fundamental change in the last five to 10 years.
0: And continuing to in the next.
1: You know, you talk to people, like you mentioned, Bloomberg, New Energy Finance, and others, and you sort of say, well, where do you bottom out? You know, how much lower can you go? And they think probably we're starting to see about the low cost for wind, but nobody knows how much further down solar can get. you know, what happened in solar in the last 10 years, it's, it's a kind of simple story. China decided it was going to step in mm-hmm. and bring economies of scale global production of solar panels and they did that and they just started driving down prices and now because of the tariffs you've seen some of the production move to Vietnam and other places but we have a global supply of low-cost solar panels
0: even a glut you would argue right Uh,
1: well there's a glut in the sense that right now if you talk to financiers they will tell you there's more money ready to be invested in renewables than there are good projects So right now the holdup, the bottleneck is just where are all the projects? You know, can you get the good? Can you get the land? Can you get the transmission? Can you get the right. connections you need? Uh, if you can get a good, if you're a developer and you've got a good project, you're going to get financing for it.
0: I'm wondering if you can explain for a second the war of currents and how it relates to renewables expansion in the U.S. So this is a debate that goes back to the 1880s, right, uh, <laughs> right. between Thomas Edison and, and Nikola Tesla. Yeah. So what are the the virtues of direct current and alternate current when it comes to transmitting electricity?
1: So alternate uh, AC, alternating current, which was sort of what won out, um, that's what we have right now. That's what our grid operates on. It's, you know, when you plug in, you're plugging into an AC grid here in the United States. Um, direct current... Has been more expensive, but it, the price has started to come down. And when you need to move power over a long distance, three, four hundred miles, it's actually cheaper now to use a, a direct current. And the other benefit, and this is sort of an important story, and uh, something that tells me will become more important over the over the coming years, with an AC grid, it's really hard to control where the power goes you just put it out onto the grid and it's sort of like it's like pouring a bucket of water into a lake you know it sort of spreads out and goes where it goes with dc you can direct it you can say okay i want this power to go over there and the reason that's important is that it has what's called black start uh, capability and so if the grid goes down for whatever reason a squirrel you know takes down a transformer and causes uh, uh, a third of the country to, um, uh, to to lose power like we saw in 2003 or there's some sort of a hacking attack, which brings down a grid, as we saw in the Ukraine. Uh, DC is a much better way to sort of say, OK, let's move power into this area, start up some of the fossil fuel plants, um, and get the grid going again. So DC has – so it, it's – they're just – you know, they're just slightly different technologies. And the people I talk to say, look, we're always going to have an AC grid. Well, maybe not always. There's some people out there talking about going over to a DC grid. Uh, but having a DC overlay gives us so much more control. It's you know it's sort of I'm trying to think what the best analogy is. It's it's like going from uh, it's like going from a grid you, you you can only control by either taking electricity out and putting electricity in to, to you know having a computer which you say okay we're going to go here we're going to go there we're going to do this we're going to do that. A lot more capability. Much to DC. more efficiency. Yeah. Much higher voltage. Yeah. And you know, there, there's a movie coming out now about the the great uh, uh, current war debate. You know, going back a hundred years, where Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison sort of duked it out as to whether we're going to have a DC grid or an AC grid. You know, in some ways, it's a little weird that we have an AC grid. Your, your laptop, your computer runs on DC. Um, and you know, if you ever plug your computer into the wall, and there, you notice that in the middle of your cord, there's this little box that gets really hot. That's converting power from AC to DC. You know, you're taking AC out of the wall, mm-hmm. um, and the heat in that box is inefficiency. You know, it's right. it's it's uh, you're losing power there, and it's converting it into DC, which is what you're running your computer on. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe one of these days that there been it would be a massive investment to switch from AC to DC. I mean, sort of imagine. Uh, countries that have gone from driving on the right to the left, right. right? And at one point, you've got to make that changeover. Well, imagine having to do that, but also making billions and billions of dollars of investment. So for right now, we're stuck with an AC grid.
0: And that was part of Michael Skelly's challenge.
1: Well, it, exactly, because what he didn't want to do is is put, I mean, he was talking about building a three to four gigawatt wind farm in the Oklahoma panhandle. Uh, so just to give you an idea, uh, a nuclear power plant, a single unit, usually about one, 1.2 gigawatts. Uh, most power plants have two or three units. So that that is comparable in size to a uh, larger even than most nuclear power plants, a huge amount of power. If he just deposited it into the local grid, he would totally overwhelm the local grid. There's nothing – you know, you just can't do with it. But with a DC current, you can just shoot it right over to Memphis nonstop and then you drop it into Memphis. Now, the Memphis is the, – there's a reason that he wanted to go to Memphis. Uh, and that is because Memphis is part of the Tennessee Valley Authority. It's the TVA grid. And back in the 70s, the TVA thought, let's go out and build like 10, 15 new nukes. And they built this great transmission system. And then they didn't build the nukes. So if you can get power into Memphis, you've got all – I mean, you've got basically wide open interstate highways for electricity to get it north east and south wherever you want to go So that's
0: the critical node that That, exactly
1: that's what he wanted to do that was the play
2: we'll get back to russell gold and reva gujon in just one moment the events unfolding in the gulf region this summer really demonstrate the fraught geopolitics that surround energy and also the risks involved when diplomacy can't still troubled waters Stratfor Enterprise and Stratfor Threatlands help corporate security leaders pinpoint evolving global events so they can forecast and implement protective measures for their people and their businesses with the utmost confidence. If you're not already a Stratfor member or you want to learn more about our products and platforms then you can find more information at stratfor.com slash enterprise. Now back to Riva Gujon and Russell Gold.
0: Welcome back. I'm Riva Gujon and I'm joined by Russell Gold, the author of two very important books on American energy, The Boom and his newly released book that came out in June, Superpower. So, somebody has to pay for this vision of mm-hmm. cleaner, efficient power generation. And as you detail in your books, there's this as to use your term, Kafkaesque battle between state and and federal regulators and, and, and private business, which can be extremely fierce. So, what does that mean for the investment climate in yeah. renewables?
1: Well, what it means, and in, in what the story of Michael Skelly and, and Clean Line, which was the company he co founded, um, is that right now in the United States, there are private investors and there's private investment money that wants to participate, and they're having a difficult time. Um, they're You know, with Skelly – everyone calls him Skelly, so that's what I'll do. Uh, You know, he ran into state laws in Arkansas because he was trying to cross Arkansas that just were not designed for anyone but the incumbent utility. Um, Just – it was a catch-22. He couldn't get in there. It took lots of time. This is a problem. Uh, And and I think it's a problem on on a number of levels. But if we're going to bring in cleaner electricity – or bring in less expensive electricity, happens to be the same thing, um, we're going to need to find a way to pay for it. And there's a lot, you know, if we're going to have this energy transition, if we're going to try to meet the Paris Accords in terms of the amount of carbon um, and greenhouse gases, why not tap the private markets? Why not find all this private investment to bring in to pay for this? But if people have the same experience that Skelly had, just bureaucracy, red tape, um, officials unwilling or unable to sort of think about how to make a change, uh, incumbent utilities throwing up roadblocks and I could go on and on. it's going to have the effect of taking this investment and driving it elsewhere. And I think that's a question you know that's something we need to to address because you know the energy transition, From fossil fuels to, certainly in the near term, a mix of fossil and renewables is not going to be cheap. I personally would love to see some of the pension fund money out of Canada and elsewhere investing in these projects. And they they want to do that, but they're having trouble because there's so many roadblocks thrown up in their way.
0: And there's a contradiction there, right? As, As you write about, the U.S. government wants private capital to build the infrastructure, create the jobs... Congress, local governments can kill a project at the 11th hour after years of work and investment. And it's not every day you're going to find a, a skelly, right? With and how drive. frustrating
1: is that for investors? You know, you're putting money in, and after 10 years, you're still waiting around for some approval. The, the, the lesson here, and this is true for energy trends, um, uh, energy infrastructure, uh, road infrastructure, any of the big projects we're, we're, we're looking at, is that there needs to be some certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, That's not to say all these projects are going to go ahead, but at least the the developers need to know, look, we're going to get a yes or no in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, And that type of regulatory certainty, it's it's interesting because one of the things that made fracking take off and natural gas is that they had regulatory certainty. Once the federal government made the decision, this is how we're going to treat fracking, this is how we're going to treat the water and the wastewater and the environmental permits, they stuck to it.
0: It just hasn't happened yet for renewables. It's
1: been a different treatment, and then so look at look at the results. Regulatory certainty allows private uh, private equity, private private capital to to vastly increase the amount of oil and gas production in the United States. Uncertainty has stymied renewable and transmission so far. It's it's really almost as simple as that.
0: You paint this this great picture of the the professionalism that has entered the renewables industry when you were referencing a, a wind industry convention in, in California, yeah. um, and the ponytails and sandals were replaced with Europeans and designer eyewear, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you see this trend of more serious money backing renewables. I'm also curious in what you see in um, shale development in the U S. where we've gone from kind of the scrappy producers operating in that wildcatter menta- mentality to big, big companies. Chevron with
1: being the big player exactly. in the premium. yeah, Much yeah. deeper
0: pockets, mm-hmm. higher risk tolerance, the tech expertise. What does that shift if there's a sort of passing of the reins taking place? What does yeah. that mean for the efficiency and scale of, of shale production moving forward?
1: Well, when you talk to some of the shale pioneers, and one of the things they would say is like, this can't be – Uh, the provenance of the big players. Because every shale well, you know, you can go and drill a shale well here, and then you go uh, a quarter mile down the road, and you've got to make little adjustments to have the well be profitable. And you, you have to be a small, nimble player to do that successfully. And that was true for a number of years. What's happening now is that we have matured enough. We figured out how to do fracking, how to design frack jobs. The big companies can come in. They've embraced uh, this sort of more factory approach. Uh, and, um, you know, and the, and the biggest difference is that the small players, because they have a track record of, frankly, burning a lot of capital and not pr- being very profitable, uh, Wall Street is much more worried or concerned and, and unwilling to give them debt or equity. Mm-hmm. But here comes Chevron, here comes Exxon, uh, Occidental, get, getting into it. Um, they have better access to capital, and so they're able to come in and sort of scoop up some of this acreage, scoop up some of these players, uh, and figure out how to do this themselves. And they've been successful so far. I mean, if you look at um, you know the the Chevron, the percentage of of their oil and gas production, which is now coming from shale type play, is mostly the Permian. It's much much larger than it used to be.
0: So would that mean as these bigger companies are drilling in in the best spots, and you know maybe at a slower rate, that the rate of production increase could slow, but overall volume could still be pretty substantial.
1: Well, yeah, I mean I think the the rate of production we, we, I'm not sure how much I'm not sure how much more we can get out of the Permian. We're up to Texas is what over 5 million barrels a day, which is sort of stunning to think of. I mean, that that's sort of you know if if texas were a country that'd be what number 2 or number 3 in the world i mean it's just huge numbers i don't know how much more um texas could go although uh, there there's one thing i've learned um having covered the 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 fracking companies is that um if you bet against shale and against fracking it's going to be a losers bet hmm. it has been for a long time they're very adept so um yeah i think the the pace might slow the pace of growth um but uh th- these are companies that can turn on know how to turn on and turn off the capital, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know even if the price goes down and they pull back, they can come roaring back if if you know the prices weren't it
0: as you said earlier, China has been making very big advances in renewables and building these massive high voltage direct current power power lines Mm -hmm. and you have a great quote from the missouri commissioner who resigned in in protest after the state government shot down a plan to have a power grid run run through the state um in his statement of dissent on the vote he said We are like the Luddites of the 19th century telling the world that we do not embrace new technologies. We are telling the world that we prefer central planning to free markets. And it made me think about, you know, well, from China's perspective, is central planning actually an advantage here in the development of renewables?
1: Um, Central planning and an ability to wipe away any kind of red tape Mm -hmm. an ability to say – because China has – China, in some ways, is like the United States. It has a great wind and a phenomenal solar resource out in the Gobi Desert, you know, way, way out uh, in the western part of the country. Uh, and, of course, all their people and all their factories are in the east. So they need – well, most of them. But, but they needed to get the power from west to east. So they just – they've built these enormous transmission mm-hmm. lines and apparatus. So in that sense, yeah, the ability to have a federal government dictate and say this is what we're going to do – um, has been an advantage. So, you know, sometimes it's not the best to be the first. You know, China's had a couple hiccups. They're trying to figure out. So the United States could learn from China. Um, but what we need to do is figure out how to balance the federal and the state authorities when we're talking about big linear projects that can go for a couple hundred miles. Um you know, and and I think the, the solution has to be some sort of incentive for the states to get on board. I mean, we've got to give the states some reason to get excited about this and sort of say, oh, this is going to create jobs. This is going to create um, energy. Uh, you know, this is what it's going to do for us. And that was what was lacking. Um, Arkansas, which really put up the biggest roadblocks here um, along the way had trouble understanding what's in it for us. And you brought up Missouri. Missouri is a sort of, you know, we've been talking about this one line from Oklahoma to, 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 to Memphis. Uh, Clean Line was actually pursuing about four lines at the same time. One of them went from Kansas through Missouri up into um, uh, the, the sort of the Illinois-Indiana Indiana state line. And Missouri, much like Arkansas, they both asked the same question. Wait, we're in the middle. Right. We're not getting the jobs from the wind farms. We're not getting the power we're just what do we get out of it? Yeah, exactly yeah. exactly and that was and that's been so there needs to be a good answer for that and right now there's not hmm. you know what are the, the? so what Skelly tried to do was sort of say alright this is going to be a big project and so we're going to make sure that as many of the jobs as possible go to Arkansas. The the company that's going to build this, the, the the steel cable, the aluminum cable that's going to go uh, into the line, that was going to be in Arkansas. The company that was going to build the towers, 200 jobs in Arkansas. So he tried to do that. Uh, it wasn't enough. But yeah, it was a, it's a good start to sort of think about spreading the benefits. <music>
2: Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Riva Gujon and The Wall Street Journal's Russell Gold, author of Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy. We'll have details about the book in our show notes. And if you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and in operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com slash enterprise. And if you have time to leave a review on the Stratfor podcast page on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you happen to listen, we'd love to hear your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Ben Sheen. Thanks for listening.